0: Take your Bible, please. Turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, you can be seated. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And while you're turning there, Psalm 42 just let me say how good it is to be back. I I was not aware that this was a special alumni week, and so it's already a privilege just to be invited to come back and preach, but to be included in the alumni week. I I, I do count it a joy and a privilege to be an alumni of West Coast Baptist College, and it's so good to be back with you. My wife is here today as well as our three children. We have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old, and uh, yes, we do feel like we're in Antarctica. So if you're looking for a where my wife is and my children, they'll be the ones bundled up in the parka jackets and hanging on to the hot chocolate there. But this place has so many good memories for me and our family, my wife. I uh, was just thinking back as this guy sang that song and, and hearing songs like that in chapel and uh, appreciate that special, guys. Nothing gets you fired up to preach like that, but I get reminded that our Lord is victorious. But I got to looking back and thinking where we sat in chapel and looked past the SLC this, this morning, and that is actually where I met my wife. I don't know if I've told this story before, but my wife and I were set up on a blind date that went terrible. And it's all Brother Nathan Burt's fault. And he and his wife, Alyssa, Alyssa birthed now formerly Alyssa King. We, uh, the three of us, had a Dr. R's history class first thing in the morning. And then we sat together in chapel, kind of in the back of the middle section right there, the front section. And uh, the li- young lady who was sitting on the other side of Alyssa kind of happened to catch my eye. And just happened to mention to Nathan at the time, said, uh, you know, one day after chapel, what is her name? Who's that young lady that's sitting with you? And uh, I-, I was just wanting to get a name and Nathan and Alyssa took that and ran with it and they said meet me here at two o'clock this afternoon. Well it was the SLC at a volleyball game. So the information that I got was come prepared at two o'clock to the SLC and you'll get a chance to meet this young lady. So Nathan and I go and we reserve seats and I'm kinda you know the, the hands a little bit sweaty kinda rubbing them together like this got a little bit nervous Alyssa goes back to the young lady's room, and she shared a suite, mate. I believe a suite there in the dorm, and all they said to her was, "Hey, let's go to a volleyball game." (laughs) Did not say one word about there's going to be a guy there that wants to talk to you. There's got a guy there that's saving us seats. And, Let's go to the volleyball game. And so the ladies come and what do you know, there happens to be an open seat right next to this handsome fellow that happens to be sitting at the, the, uh, the volleyball game. And so I'm trying to ask questions and get to know her and I'm getting short one word answers. Yep, nope, yeah. And I'm over here thinking, this girl has the personality of a rock. <laughs> and she's over here thinking, this dude's a creeper. We didn't know that the other didn't know this was supposed to be a date. The only saving grace that happened and occurred at that day, the volleyball team ran around and they threw out Snicker bars before the game. And I happened to catch one. And I shared it. No, just kidding, I gave the whole thing to her. I gave her the whole Snicker bar. So I joke with her. The only reason she stayed was because I gave her chocolate. And you know any time that I get in trouble in my marriage, I just pull out the handy bar of chocolate right there. You know, at the time, I did not think that Nathan was a very good friend. I actually hated him for setting us up on that date. But come to find out, she didn't know, and I didn't know, and so our second date, I actually asked her officially, would you go with me to this activity? And when she knew it was supposed to be a date, she actually responded to the questions I asked, and had a little bit more personality than a rock. And uh, now, six years later, we're happily married with three children, and I don't hate the Berts anymore. So that's that's a good story right there. I do say this in all sincerity, I, my wife and I, we have no closer friends in the ministry than Brother Burt and Mrs. Burt, Nathan and Alyssa, and so I do be thankful for them, and, uh, and so they still take credit for setting us up, uh, I, I don't think it was them, I think it was the Snicker Bars, but the moral of that story is, gentlemen, if at first you don't succeed... Grab a Snickers, all right. So there you go. That's that's the moral of the story. Psalm forty-two. Uh, I wanted you to have a seat so I could tell that story to you. But once you found your place there, would you stand with me one more time? I'll be honest with you. I had another message prepared. And uh, I left it over there where I was seating because just in talking with the, the gentlemen in the room and hearing the announcements and hearing the song, uh, I feel led to go a different direction. I do th- believe this is where we need to be If the nature of what's going on, uh, maybe in our church, maybe in this church, in this student body. And so pray that uh, something will be said that will be a help to you. Psalm 42, we're going to look at the entire psalm throughout the message today, but I think we will understand it better understand the context of what's taking place. Instead of reading the whole psalm right now, let's just read the first two verses and then we'll continue reading the psalm as we work down through the message, alright? So Psalm 42, the Bible says verse number one, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to open up a copy of your preserved and inspired word. Thank you for how your word changes lives, how your word changed my life at this place. And I pray that you will continue to use your word to do the same, not just today, but in the days to come in this student body. Lord, would you give us humility to receive your word today? And then would you give us grace to apply it in the days to come as well? We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing this morning. Well, Psalm 42, unlike other psalms, we do not know exactly as to who the human author is. There are some who think that this was written by David as he was on the run, fleeing from Absalom. There are others who study this passage and they think it was written by an unnamed Levite as he was in captivity looking back towards Jerusalem and longing for the temple and to be around God's people and God's presence. But those who study this passage, most put the, uh, the, the eggs in one basket. They tend to believe that Hezekiah could be the writer of this psalm. And they believe that Psalm 42 and the next one are definitely connected. And they perhaps describe the two most troublesome times in Hezekiah's life. A time where he was told by the prophet Isaiah of a life-threatening illness. And then another time in his life when he received the threat of a a life-threatening invasion. When Sennacherib and the Assyrians uh, sent him a letter saying, Prepare, And we're going to come and conquer you. And we know from the Scriptures that he took that letter and spread it before God. But both of those scenarios were life-threatening, dangerous, harmful circumstances in his life. We may not know for certain as to who who the human author is, But we do know for the purpose of this writing. If you look underneath the title, Psalm 42, it says, To the chief musician, Mesquil, for the sons of Korah. Now call your attention to that word, Mesquil. It means understanding. This is a psalm of instruction. The writer of this psalm, we're just going to refer to him as the writer throughout the message today. He has been through some experiences. He has learned some things about his God and about himself. And he is writing this for you and I to read and to sing through so we can understand God in the manner in which he does as well. And that's the purpose of this uh, psalm. It's a psalm of instruction. Now, as we look down through the first couple of verses, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The first thing that we see as we look down through this psalm, the writer describes his anguish. He describes his anguish. And kind of to help us understand where his anguish is coming from, we need to define what he is talking about when he says, as the heart panteth, so my soul thirsteth after God. In our day and in our context, especially if you live in a desert like I do in the north side of Phoenix, when you think of the word "pant" or an animal panting or somebody thirsting, you might think of the noise that an animal makes when he is thirsty. You might think of a dog with his tongue hanging out, and boy, I am, uh, uh, I am, I am needing some refreshment. I'm needing some water. He's tired and he needs refreshed. But as we look a little bit deeper as to what this word means, there is a deeper meaning, and it opens our eyes to what this man is going through. If you look across the scriptures at the word panteth, you only find it used one other time in the scriptures, and it's very significant. If you will, take your Bible with me, turn over to Joel chapter 1. The minor prophet in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 1. In Psalm 42, we see a word that is translated in our language as panteth. And here in Joel chapter 1, we're going to see the same root word and gives us the same insights. Joel chapter 1. Look at verse number 20. Give you some time to find that there. You're looking through, thinking through how much Old Testament survey have I remembered so far? Where is the book of Joel? Joel chapter 1, look at verse number 20. It says, The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of water are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The same word that is translated penteth in verse number 1 of Psalm 42 is translated cry in verse 20 of Joel chapter 1. It's not describing a sound that an animal makes when it's thirsty, as much as the focus is on the cry and the sound that is expressed from an inward longing. Here in verse 20, the the animals cried because their pastures were missing and the rivers were dried up. There was a cry, an expression of, I need something and I don't have it. As we relate that to what our psalmist is saying in Psalm 42, my soul thirsteth, my soul cries after God. He is saying, I need something from you, God, and right now I don't have it. Makes us ask the question, what is it that he's crying for? What is it that he's missing and longing for? And the answer to that is in the last phrase of verse number 2. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? Just as one stands before a judge, or just as a a servant appears and has a face-to-face confrontation with his master, he is saying, I am desiring an audience with God. God, I am going through some things right now. I have been through some things in my life and I don't have answers and I'm wondering, God, when can I make an appointment with You? God, when will You give me some answers to what I am facing right now in my life? When will I stand before God? We're getting serious business here, isn't it? Look at what he says in verse 3. Let's continue reading. We'll see why he is asking for this audience. Verse number 3, he says, My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. Now we're with a little more serious than I'm just thirsty, I'm needing refreshment. The writer is saying, I'm crying my eyeballs out because what I am going through, and I don't have an answer, and I'm wondering, God, can you help me understand... What has taken place. Notice about this anguish in verse number four, the writer tells us it is unexpected. He says it's unexpected. He says in the middle of the verse, I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Now call your attention to that last word in verse number four holy day. It is not what we might think of as the Sabbath or our day, the Lord's day, where we gather in God's house and we sing and we worship Him. The holy day refer to the special feasts and the special celebrations that God's people were to observe in the Old Testament. He's saying, "What makes this hurt so much," he says, is, I remember the good times that we had. I remember the joys. I remember the laughter. I remember the mountaintop experiences. And then all of a sudden, this takes place. You say, Pastor, where is Pastor Mitchell, where is this message coming from? You know, sometimes in the ministry, one of the most wonderful things and one of the most nerve-wracking things is that Sunday is always coming. Sunday is always coming. It doesn't matter if everybody else had a holiday in the week, Sunday comes the same time doesn't matter if people were sick and you had to make hospital visits, Sunday comes, Sunday morning comes, the same time every week, and you have to have a message ready. There's a, a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers will feed off of that adrenaline, and, and sure, no doubt that is exciting. But there is a danger of trying to study so much to have a sermon to meet that deadline. i got to have something for Sunday that we desire a sermon, but we first don't get a message. In other words, we don't let God preach to us before God uses us to preach to the people. And I'll be honest with you, I was kind of in that trap myself this summer. Things were going right along all smoothly the first six months. And our church is just about 20 months old and still a baby church and growing. And we had a big day in the the first part of the year. It seemed like almost every month there was a big exciting time. And then we hit the month of July. And I tell you, it just seemed one thing after another, Uh, on top of uh, air conditioning not working in the place that we are meeting. I mean, you try to hold a church service in Phoenix with no air conditioning, let me tell you, you will learn how to discern how to make your messages precise, just like that. That's what will happen. But I, I remember getting to a place where I was saying, all right, Lord, I don't understand what's going on here, and the message that we're sharing this morning is a result of the experiences that our church went through. The message I'm sharing with you is one that God had to first preach to me. We had just come off a big day in in June and had a baptism service, and people we were praying for got baptized and joined the church, and there were family members present who got to hear the gospel that had uh, never been inside a church before. We're rejoicing off that mountaintop, and then we hit July. And I just tell you, one of our core families, one of our most helpful families, one of our most faithful ones, the ones that you would think or never say a cross word about you, all of a sudden decided to, to move on from our church. And I just remember thinking in the middle of the night, Lord, where did this come from? After having a final conversation with him, trying to work through some things and, and, and trying to see where is this coming from. And I, I relate exactly to what the, the, the author is saying in verse number four. I remember the good times. I remember the joys that we just had and now you're, you're going this direction and now this is a hurt that our church is facing. This is a hurt that our family is facing. Where is this coming from? But you know what I've also found, not just in ministry, but in life. Your life is not mountaintop, mountaintop, mountaintop experience. Before you go from a mountaintop to a mountaintop, you have to first go through a valley. You'll find that in ministry. You'll find that in your marriage as well. You'll find that in your parenting and raising children. You'll have wonderful times, wonderful joys, mountaintop experiences, and then right behind it, a difficulty that's unexpected. I remember the joys. I remember the celebrations. Where did this come from? You think about your marriage, and you think of the wonderful times that you'll have together. You'll have lots of mountaintop experiences. Boy, the day that I got introduced to my wife, all right, well, you know, the second date was a mountaintop experience. We'll go with that, because the first date wasn't so good. But August 10th, 2013, when we stood at an altar, and I kissed her for the very first time right there at an altar, our wedding altar, that was a mountaintop experience. I hope that you have the same mountaintop experiences in your marriage. But then, gentlemen, just let me tell you. Sometimes, I mean, you'll, you'll think it. You'll, you'll go through it. You'll see it. You'll be on a mountaintop. And, and uh, there's a beautiful time. It's wonderful. And then you'll find out what ladies look like without makeup. I've got to be careful because she's going to hear this, isn't she? She's recording this. Ladies, you'll, you'll find out what, that men are, are slobs. That they drink milk out of the carton. We've been raised in a dorm. We've been living in the dorm for four years where we're fighting over who's going to drink our milk and we we put our, our, our name on the milk. The first conflict in your marriage is, woman, stop drinking my milk. You'll have mountaintop experiences and you'll go through valleys. You'll pray and you'll pray, God, give us a child. And then God blesses and God answers that request. And then for whatever reason, in His will and in His timing, He takes that child away. Or you'll pray and you'll pray. There's the flip side of that equation. God, bless us with the child. And it seems like God is answering that request for everybody else except for you. I'm just trying to tell you, college student, that we had better learn how to deal with life's valley times. Because you'll face them often. He says this anguish was unexpected. But then he also said in verse 5, it was unexplained. This anguish was unexplained. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Disquieted talks about confusion, talks about uh, not having any answers, uh, uh, distress, confusion. Why are you disquieted? Why is there confusion? Why is all this anguish? I, I don't understand. You know, you see that question in verse 5, you're going to see it in verse 11. You'll see it at the end of the next psalm as well. But one thing that you never see here, you never see a direct answer. You never see an answer in the following verse. Why art thou disquieted within me? Why is there confusion? You never see the Lord answer, if you will, and say, well, this is what's taking place, or there's sin here that needs to be covered, or this is something that's taking place. Sometimes we'll go through difficulties and trials, and there will be an answer. There will be something that will be revealed. But other times, we won't have an immediate answer. He says it's unexpected. He says it's unexplained. This is an anguish that he's facing. In the rest of this psalm, it is simply a conversation, if you will, between the writer and the Lord. As the, 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 the writer finally gets his audience before God and he's trying to make sense of what has taken place. He's trying to balance his faith with his sense, what he can see, what he's comprehending, and yet his faith to still trust God. So after we see his anguish, notice he describes his assistance in verses 6-8 through eight as well. The writer's assistance. The amazing truth in this passage is As many times as this question gets asked, even though we don't have an immediate answer, you also don't see God getting upset that the question gets asked. You don't see Him saying, wait a second, you just said, verse number 5, why art thou disquieted disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him. Then in verse 6, He says again, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. You don't see Him saying, wait a second, I thought your hope was in me in verse 5, and now you're back here in verse 6, and what's taking place here? Didn't I just already help you with this? And didn't I just already answer this? No, it seems as if the one who has all the answers is willing to entertain our struggles with our circumstances. He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to lay it out on the table before Him that's exactly what's taking place. That there's that balance in verse number 5. As we, we just read it, he's trying to figure out why is there confusion, but he knows I'm supposed to be faithful and I'm supposed to trust God and my hope is in Him. But then he continues on in verse number 6 and he says, I am still overwhelmed. Look at what he says in verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water sprouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Notice how he says he's still overwhelmed. In verse number 6, he mentions specific areas of territory and geographical areas. He talks about how he will remember God and will look to God from the land of Jordan. And he talks about the Hermonites and that mentions the hill Mizar. The Hermonites is simply referring to a large mountain range that was there in that northern territory. And the hill Mizar is a separate hill, but it's a smaller hill. He says, God, I'm trying to look to you and I'm trying to stand. And even if it's on a mountain or even if it's on a smaller hill, I'm, I'm trying to look to you from there. But this is what he says takes place in verse, seven, in verse number 7. Death, deep calleth unto deep, all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. He says it feels as just like I'm, I'm, I'm under a waterfall, I'm under the floodwaters here. Everything that I am trying to, to bear, everything that I am carrying, I am struggling keeping my head above water. God, I don't care if it's on top of a mountaintop or if it's on top of a hill. God, would you help me just try to get above this? He says, I'm still overwhelmed, but he's not overcome in verse number eight. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. If there's a key passage, key verse in this passage, I think it definitely is verse number 8. Because notice how he says God helps him through long days and long nights. Have you ever had a day like that? A day where you don't want to wake up? A day because you know what's coming? A day because you know the circumstances you're facing? You don't want to answer the alarm clock. You don't want to get out of bed. And yet, you don't want the night to end either. You try to get some sleep, but it seems like it can't. The burdens weigh on you. Circumstances are always on your mind. Notice what he says. How do we get through the long days? How do we get through the never-ending nights? He says, God will command His loving kindness in the daytime. He says, I will know, I will feel the loving kindness of my God in the daytime. And he says he knows that because it's commanded by God. Can I remind us that we as humans are the only part of God's creation that does not obey instantly a command from God? Winds and waves, peace, be still, instantly. Ravens, take some food, take it to Elijah, instantly. What does he say is good to be commanded? Loving kindness. An attribute of God. Something coming from Him. A straight, direct command. He says, I will feel His loving arms around me. And then He says in verse number 8, In the night His song shall be with me. We have His loving kindness in the day. And He says, we have His presence in the night. His song shall be with me. Brother Mitchell, I don't know about you, maybe... You're more spiritual than I am. But I just don't feel like singing whenever I'm hurting. I don't feel like singing praises to God. I can't sing. There's a reason I'm going to be a missionary to a faraway country. So nobody has to hear me sing over here. I don't feel like Paul and Silas singing praises at midnight. Well, look again at the verse. The great truth from this verse. It does not say, I will sing your song in the night. It doesn't say, I will sing your praise in the night. It says, His song shall be with me. The wonderful thing about music is God has designed and created it to be this way. God has designed music to have a certain effect on your soul. The presence of music. Not just us singing it. I'm talking about us hearing it. Music ministering to us. God has designed music so it can have a certain effect on our soul. That's why it matters what kind of music you listen to. There can be some music, as soon as you hear it, it can make you want to snap your fingers like this. It has that effect on you. There can be some music, people listen to opera music, and it has this effect on them. They just start crying just like this. Now that's me, I'd be crying too, but it'd be for a different reason. Opera does not do that to me, but there are some people in this land that, wow, that was such a beautiful, touching song. What is wrong with you? (laughs) Music, just the presence of it, is designed to affect our soul. And listen, the Bible says the right kind of music can even help a restless soul. If you will, take your Bible with me. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We won't take the time today to read down through the entire passage here, 1 Samuel 16. By now, there is an evil spirit from the Lord that is on Saul. And and don't miss the truth here, trying to figure out what that evil spirit is and what it means. To, to To summarize it, Saul disobeyed God, and he put himself in a position to where he could no longer receive God's blessing. God's hand of blessing was removed from Saul, and it had an effect on him. I just want to call out to your attention verse number 23, the last verse of the chapter. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took an harp and he played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. What happened when Saul was in the presence of music? It says his spirit was refreshed. And he was well. I don't know what song David played. I don't know if he played to God be the glory. I don't know if he played nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. But the principle was this. The presence of the song ministered to the hurting heart. And the principle there in verse number 8 of our text, what kind of song is it going to be? Whose presence is it? He says it is his song that will be with me. His presence will be with me in the night. How can I get through those long nights? The writer's saying, because I know I'm not alone. I have somebody with me. And that's why he says, my prayer will be with you, will be to you in the night. I'm not going to be alone. I'm going to need to talk through some things to you. And I I kind of had that similar experience when the family told us they were leaving out of nowhere. And I remember not sleeping that night. I remember crying in a manner that I had never cried before as a pastor and a shepherd. And I remember calling out to God and saying, Lord, can you help me through this? And I remember in the days to come a peace and a help coming over me and helping me through this and sharing some of these truths with our church, helping us through some hurtful times. There's strength and there's encouragement in knowing you are not alone when you face the difficulties. The writer has described his anguish. He's described his assistance. But notice lastly this morning, he describes his affirmation in verses 9 through 11. Verse number 9 of the text, his affirmation He says, I will say unto God, My rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? He's going back to the struggle, isn't he? He's had a night of faith and my hope's in God, but God, my soul is still disquieted, but now i felt your loving kindness and your presence has been with me, but God, I'm still hurting over this you know what this tells us it tells us there will be some hurts that we face in life that will take some time to recover there will be some hurts in life that any one message or one night or one service may not cure it entirely but that does not mean that God is not capable of helping us you know for example we have an ache today or we have an ill or a pain and we go to the doctor and he gives us a prescribed medicine and it says take two of these pills for two weeks you know what happens we take the first pill we take the second pill after two days and we don't see the response we don't take that jar of medicine we don't take those pills and chunk them out the window and say thanks a lot doctor four years eight years of medical school wasted on you no we recognize there are some hurts that are so deep that are so painful and so hurtful, it will take some time. He gives us a a reminder of that, but notice his resolve in the last verse, verse 11. It's a similar verse that he's already mentioned. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. But his resolve comes in the last part of the verse. I shall yet praise Him, who is the health of my countenance, and my God. If you were to just take the first part of that verse and look at verse number 5, you find the first part of that, the exact same thing. Why art thou cast down on my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? But now, notice how his perspective has changed at the end of the psalm. The end of verse 11. He says, I will still praise Him. I will yet praise Him. Because he says these two words at the end. My God. You know what he's learned throughout this psalm? He's learned the strength of his God. What's the understanding? What's the instruction in this psalm? Trials and hurts can either shake your confidence in God or they can strengthen your confidence in God. Trials can shake your confidence in God. Or they can strengthen your confidence in God. How was his strengthened? He understood life is full of hurt. But he walked away promising and knowing, my God is bigger than my hurt. And I don't know what kind of hurts you have this morning. I don't know what unexplained, uh, uh, unexpected questions and obstacles you're facing. I don't know what kind of long nights you've had, but I do know this. You do not have to allow your hurt to shake your confidence in God. You don't have to be bitter. You can be better. You can be stronger. You can move forward. You can only say that, have that confidence, if you, like the psalmist, can say, He is my God.